The Jodcast, Leaving on a Jet Plane, with Megan Argo, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, and Ian Morrison. The Jodcast, June 2010 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Stuart Lowe, and joining me this time is Jen Gupta. Hi, Jen. Hi, Stuart, and hi, everyone. It's good to have you back, and I actually I say that you're back, but you're about to disappear again. Yeah, I'm uh, taking a month off. I'm going to Egypt and then to America, so... That's on holiday? Egypt's holiday, America is work, and then I'm actually meeting up with Dave in Washington, D.C., and we're going to have a lot of fun. Dave's on a planetarium tour of the estates at the moment, so I'm going to go and join him for a few days. And due to that, we're not going to have a June Extra edition of the Jodcast. So the next edition will be in July, and that will be from the United States. So it's a bit of an American road trip. Yeah, Dave and I seem to be building a tradition of meeting up over the summer in random places. Last year we were in Milan, this year America. I wonder where we'll go next year. I hasten to say that none of this is paid for by the Jodcast. (laughs) No, unfortunately. You two just somehow managed to find yourself travelling yeah. the world. It's, it's, it's just a fatal attraction. Well, coming up in this show, we hear about the search for alien life with LOFA. We find out about astronomy from a jetliner. We have a report about Maori astronomy, and Ian tells us what we can see in the night sky during June. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, a possible new class of supernova, a runaway star in 30 Doradus, and Hubble spots a planet-eating star. Most supernovae are classified as one of two different types of explosion, single massive short-lived stars that explode when their cores run out of fuel at the end of their lives and undergo gravitational collapse, and old evolved white dwarfs in binary systems, which accrete hydrogen from a companion star before exploding catastrophically. Core-collapse supernovae are generally seen only in regions of ongoing star formation, since, by stellar standards, the supergiant progenitors do not live for very long. In contrast, Type 1a supernovae in binary systems are produced by old, evolved stars, and so are seen in all galaxy types, even those which show no signs of recent star formation. However, in the May 20th issue of the journal Nature, two groups of astronomers report stellar explosions with characteristics that do not fit into existing categories of supernovae, and come to very different conclusions about their progenitors. The first event, SN2005e, was observed in the Edgeon Spiral Galaxy NGC 1032 in 2005, and was initially classified as a Type 1b core-collapse supernova, based on the chemical elements detected in its optical spectrum soon after explosion. Located in the halo rather than in the disk of the galaxy, the surrounding environment is composed of an old stellar population with no recent star formation, an unlikely location for a core-collapse supernova. While some of its properties show similarities to Type 1a explosions, the light curve shows a much faster decline than is expected for thermonuclear explosion of a white dwarf. The mass ejected in the explosion, less than a third of a solar mass, is also low for this class of supernova, and analysis of the spectra showed significant differences from what is expected from either explosion mechanism. This evidence led Dr. Perret's team to conclude that the progenitor was something unusual, likely to be a helium-rich low-mass star, probably a helium-accreting white dwarf, making 2005e the first example of a new class of supernova. However, 2005e is not the only supernova with these unusual characteristics. Several other calcium-rich subluminous supernovae, spectroscopically classified as type 1b or 1c events, have also been observed. One such event is SN2005cz, reported by Professor Kawabata and colleagues in the same issue of Nature. While 2005cz shares many properties with 2005e, Kaobata's team reaches a different conclusion on the cause of the explosion. According to their study, supernovae in this class are more likely to originate via the core collapse mechanism, but from stars with masses at the lower end of the range of those that explode. Unlike 2005e, 2005cz is located in an elliptical galaxy. These galaxies are generally made up of old stellar populations, but NGC 4589 has a relatively young stellar population for an elliptical galaxy, so the explosion of a star by core collapse is not ruled out. Since most supernova searches are more likely to detect bright events, the number of faint 2005e-like events currently known is small. More sensitive surveys are planned, however, and these should result in many more examples and further insights into this non-standard class of supernova. One of the most spectacular examples of a star formation region in the nearby universe is 30 Doradus, also known as the Tarantula Nebula, located in the Large Magellanic Cloud. 
This region is a giant stellar nursery, similar to the Orion Nebula, but much larger, containing many clusters of recently formed young hot stars. Some of the young stars in the nebula are many tens of times more massive than the Sun, making them some of the most massive stars known. New observations, reported in the Astrophysical Journal on May the 5th, show that one particular star is travelling away from the nebula at high velocity. The star, known as 30 Doradus 016, was first spotted in 2006 when it was observed by the Anglo-Australian Telescope at Siding Spring Observatory in Australia. It was found to be an exceptionally hot, massive blue-white star, located relatively far from any cluster in which stars are usually found. More recent observations, made during the calibration of the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph, installed on the Hubble Space Telescope during servicing Mission 4 in May 2009, showed that the star had an unusually fast stellar wind, almost 3,500 kilometres per second, one of the most powerful ever detected, and a strong indication that the star is incredibly massive. It is estimated to be roughly 90 times the mass of the Sun. Its size means that it must be young. Stars this large only live for a few million years before exploding as core-collapse supernovae. Archive images taken by Hubble's Widefield Planetary Camera 2 in 1995 show that the star is at one end of an egg-shaped cavity in the surrounding interstellar gas, which points towards 30 Doradus, in the direction of a cluster of massive stars known as R136, the likely birthplace of the star. Further observations made with a very large telescope in Chile have shown that the star's velocity is more than 400,000 kilometres an hour, a speed that would get you from the Earth to the Moon in under an hour. The measured velocity could have been due to orbital motion if the star had a companion, but the VLT observation showed that it is a single massive star, and the velocity is due to motion away from the nebula. Stars can end up with such high velocities as a result of nearby explosions. In the case of 016, however, this is unlikely, since the stars in 30 Doradus are still too young to have exploded as supernovae. The more likely explanation, say the team, led by Chris Evans at the UK Astronomy Technology Centre in Edinburgh, is that it was ejected from the cluster by dynamical interactions with other massive stars, one of the clearest examples yet of such a process. Most of the extrasolar planets discovered so far are in the class known as hot Jupiters, large gas giants orbiting close to their parent stars, since many of the search techniques used are most sensitive to this kind of planet. Usually these planets are located close enough to their parent star that they orbit in just a few days, but a team have now discovered one that is orbiting so close to its parent star that it is actually being disrupted. The planet, known as WASP-12b, is located in the constellation of Auriga, and was discovered in the Wide Area Search for Planet Survey, or WASP, operated by a consortium of eight academic institutions. WASP consists of two robotic observatories, one located at La Palma in the Canary Islands, the other at the South African Astronomical Observatory at Sutherland in South Africa both scanning the sky for the tiny dimming effects caused when a planet transits in front of the star. This particular planet orbits its parent star, a yellow dwarf known as WASP-12, in just 1.1 Earth days, and shows evidence of an atmosphere which extends far further from the planet than would be expected for a body of this size. Previous observations have shown that at least one other exoplanet displays evidence of such an extended atmosphere, and two different mechanisms have been suggested, either heating from the parent star, or an interaction with the stellar wind. This new planet was first discovered by the WASP survey in 2008, and was predicted to be physically distorted by its proximity to the host star. These new observations, made with the Cosmic Origin Spectrograph on the Hubble Space Telescope, and published in the Astrophysical Journal during May, have verified the prediction. WASP-12b is so close to the star, that the tidal forces exerted on it have heated and deformed it far from the normal almost spherical planetary shape, so far, in fact, that the internal heating has caused the atmosphere to expand far enough that it is being dragged off onto the surface of the star. Absorption from elements such as sodium, magnesium, aluminium and tin was expected in the atmosphere of the star, and the increase in absorption during the transit allowed the astronomers to calculate how common these elements are in the planet's atmosphere. The research, led by Luca Fossati at the Open University in the UK, examined the ultraviolet spectrum of the planet's atmosphere, and found a much greater abundance of heavy elements than expected from models of planetary atmospheres. The suggested reason for this unexpected result is that the high amount of incident radiation due to the close proximity of the star, together with the tidal effects, cause a large amount of mixing within the atmosphere, pulling heavy elements higher in the atmosphere than would normally be found. The heating also causes the atmosphere to expand, overflowing what is known as the Roche limit, the point beyond which particles escape the gravitational pull of the planet and are lost to the surrounding space. From the evidence provided by their ultraviolet observations, 
The researchers conclude that the planet is probably undergoing photoevaporation by its host star, and the material lost from the atmosphere is forming a diffuse ring around the star along the planet's orbit. While few examples of such systems are currently known, further observations and detailed modelling will help to determine exactly what is going on in these peculiar atmospheres. And finally, astronomers have connected up the largest ever array of radio telescopes in the Southern Hemisphere, and made the highest resolution image of the core of the nearby active galaxy Centaurus A. The project linked up new telescopes in New Zealand and in Midwest Western Australia with the existing long baseline array, including the Parkes Radio Telescope in New South Wales, to form an array more than 5,500 kilometres across, the first time telescopes have been connected over such large distances in the Southern Hemisphere. At 14 million light-years from Earth, Centaurus A is the nearest example of a galaxy containing an active black hole at its core. Observations show two enormous jets moving out from the core at close to the speed of light, but probing the physics of the core itself requires very high-resolution observations, only possible by linking up radio telescopes over many thousands of kilometres. The new telescope at Walkworth is the first research-quality radio telescope in New Zealand, while the new antenna in Western Australia is the first of many that will make up the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. Using the same technique, the Square Kilometre Array will consist of radio telescopes spread out over many thousands of kilometres, and will be located either in Australia or Southern Africa. Thanks for that, Megan. Over the past few shows, we've been bringing you our interviews from the National Astronomy Meeting, held in Glasgow in April, and here we are with the very last of those interviews, talking about LOFAR and the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. I've got Dr. Adam Penny here from the University of St. Andrews, and you're doing something quite interesting with LOFAR. You're searching for extraterrestrial life. So could you tell us a little bit about how this project came about and what you're doing with it? Yeah, LOFAR is a new radio telescope based mainly in the Netherlands, but it's a distributed array, so there are stations in the Netherlands and in Germany, and we're now building one in Britain. And this telescope works at low frequencies compared with the normal radio telescopes. Normal radio telescopes, the wavelengths are 21 centimetres, whereas LOFAR works at 2 to 5 metres. So it's a, a really unexplored wavelength range for radio astronomy. And there's a number of us who are interested in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which has been done with normal radio telescopes, looking for sharp emission lines in the radio, which must come from an artificial source, not a natural source. Um, so it was a logical thing to do. It was to, to look at LOFAR and see whether you could look in a different wavelength band, you know, because we don't know where they, whoever they are, are sending out signals. So when you're looking for signals from extraterrestrial life, is that it's a similar thing to how we have TV and radio and everything, so it spans over quite a long wave band, is that right? I mean, the trouble is we don't know. If they're out there, then they're either like us, in which case they will be too far away for, for their TVs, for us to pick up their TVs, or they'll be much more advanced than us, a billion years older. Um, so we don't know what they're doing. So we, we look in every possible case, and, and one case is they're sending out radio emissions, you know, perhaps signals for their own purposes, and we can detect these. And if they are this, this very narrow response, uh, we'll be able to see that and say, ah, oh, this is not from ionised gas or something. This, this must be from an artificial source. So what are some of the challenges that you face with doing this? OK, well, LOFAR is, is a very new telescope. It's only really been commissioned in the, ne- in the last six months, and they are uh, rolling out the new stations. In fact, the, the British one being built down in the south in Chibolton is still being constructed. So it, it's a telescope that, because it joins together very different stations, a lot of the work is developing the software to join the signals together. And this software has been developed for normal radio astronomy, but there isn't much as far as looking for special city astronomy. So there's a lot of software to develop, uh, which is new. And we, and we don't know whether we can do it. Uh, we've got this pilot program to find out uh, whether we can link together telescopes for, the, for our SETI work. And then there's a problem of actually working at low frequencies. At high frequencies, the radio sky, as we call it, the background radio radiation, is very low. There's not much out there. But at lower frequencies the ionised gas in our galaxy radiates. So there's, so there's more noise, sort of, you know, it's harder to hear it. And, and there are more problems in that when a radio wave travels through the gas in our galaxy, it gets scattered, and, and this will make the detection more difficult. So there's, 
developing the software for the telescope and seeing how far we can work at this low frequency. Obviously, we can do the nearby stars. There's no problem with that. And that would be very interesting because the nearby stars have never been looked at in this low frequency. But we want to know how far away we can go. And how far have you got with developing this so far? We were given our first amount of time to investigate this in January. And then last week, we got software working which will enable us to get very narrow frequency response. So if the telescope working in one mode, it works with wavelengths from 10 to 5 metres. And we take all those frequencies and we divide them up into 20 million individual bands and look in each band for these narrow band software. And the spectrum we got last week showed we could do this. We could do this division into 20 million bands. So we're, we're very pleased that the first step in our software development has succeeded. And we actually have... We've got a spectrum, and if by chance there was something out there where our telescope happened to be pointing, we would have detected it, but, but we didn't detect it. So we've taken our first step, and we're very excited within a year that we'll be actually be able to do a survey of the nearby stars. You're looking for very narrow bands. This is like how when you have a radio station that only transmits at a very specific frequency. But yeah. while those waves are travelling through, through space, does it get spread out or does it stay narrow? It, it, it gets spread out. Um, it doesn't get spread out much when you're working uh, at, with normal road telescopes at centimetre wavelengths. When you're working down at our metre wavelengths, it gets spread out. So as it comes from a nearby star, which is only 10 light years away, so uh, there'll be no problem. But we don't know when you go... If you look, say you look into the middle of the galaxy, which is, um, which is something like 20,000 light years away, then any signal will get scattered and spread out. Uh, we could probably still detect it, but the, it'll be spread out so the background hum from the, from the galaxy will drown it out. And what we're doing now is finding out whether, how far we can do it. Can we just do the nearest thousand stars, or will we be able to do a million stars? I guess SETI, it, it tends to be something that's done by private companies in America. How many people are actually working on this on LOFAR? Very few. Um, <laughs> In effect, um, there is no public funding study. No government in the world has been advised by its wise men of science to put public money into this. So this is very much a a low-key effort. Uh, We certainly couldn't build our own radio telescopes. As you said, in America, Paul Allen, the Microsoft billionaire, has paid for a uh, an institution, the SET Institute, which is a private thing, he's paid for that to build their own radio telescopes, twenty, thirty million dollars. Um, in Britain uh, and in in Europe, there's no public funding, so this is sort of scraping together people who are do- doing other things but can spare a bit of time to do this. It's difficult to justify SETI because you don't know what you're looking for. You don't, you don't know if it's there. You know, you can't say, you know, give me this amount of money and I will discover this, which you can do with a normal trade telescope. You can say, I will study a radio galaxy, and I, and I know I'll be able to plot out the gas. In SETI, we can't do that. So the scientific justification is very, very strange. Um, they, it, they might not be there at all. We just don't know. Um, my feeling is it would be, it would be so wimpish not to have a go. Yeah, it seems to me that it's one of the big questions. You think I, I would have thought that more governments would be wanting to do this, want to look for other life out there. It, it's a very big question. The trouble is you don't know how to do it. It's, it's, it's the classical thing. You, you're looking for a black cat in a cellar at night, and the problem is you don't even know if the cat's there at all. And you, know, you can't say, I saw a cat go in there, so I know it's in there. You can say, well, there may be a cat in there, or there may not be a cat. So, you know, so, so that's why, I think quite rightly, governments have been a bit shy. They've been saying, you know, so well, why should we take taxpayers' money on something you can't say you're going to see? You know, we can't say we've got a 10% chance of success. We, we really don't know. I want to really start a campaign I call the 1 in 200 campaign. I think it would be good if 0.5% of the money that goes into astronomy uh, was going to SETI. I think that would be the right amount and that would be one in 200 of, of the total funding. So perhaps... Well, good luck with that, and thank you for talking to us today. Okay. Thanks, Jen. Now, one of the problems faced by many astronomers is that we have to look through the Earth's turbulent atmosphere in order to observe. 
getting above that sea of bubbling air into space is very expensive, and it's then nearly impossible to take your telescope in for repair if anything does go wrong. A rather surprising alternative is to put your telescope on a plane and fly it above most of the atmosphere, as Jen found out from a recent visitor to Jodrell Bank. So I've got Professor Bob Gertz here from the University of Minnesota, and he is in Manchester as part of his job as the leader of the Sophia Community Task Force. So could we start by talking about what actually Sophia is? Sure. Sophia is a new NASA project. It's called the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. Sophia, which means that uh, it flies in the stratosphere. That's way above uh, the normal uh, level of the atmosphere. It's the highest place where normal aircraft go. And we get above water vapor, which is what absorbs infrared radiation trying to come into the ground from outer space. So if we're above that water, then we can see things in outer space in the infrared more easily. So you've just got a telescope in the back of a plane? That's Yeah, we've got a, a telescope in the back of a plane, but it's a huge one. It's 100 inches in diameter, 2.5 meters. So that's just, just a normal infrared? Yeah, telescope, nothing so it's about. got to be a 747 aircraft, the yeah. biggest commercial aircraft uh, around. Is there is this the first mission that's been flown on a plane, or has there been previous? This is ones? not the first mission that's been flown on a plane. Uh, back in 1967, we were flying a little 12-inch telescope inside a Learjet, and later on, we flew a 30-inch telescope inside a military aircraft called a Starlifter. But now we've got this big one. Okay. Astronomers always have to have things bigger and better. <laughs> of course. If you've got an infrared telescope, I guess you can't have any glass or anything in front of it. So is this open to the air? We can't have any kind of a window because it would absorb the infrared. So we actually have to look out of an open hole in the airplane, and uh, otherwise we would not be able to see the infrared. So this airplane has to be able to fly with the side open, and uh, then the people in it have to be behind a bulkhead that uh, where they're pressurized. So who do you get to fly this plane? Is it just a normal pilot, or do you have some astronomer who's been trained up? No, we have some uh, uh, NASA test pilots who fly oh, okay. this plane. They're we're trained to fly shuttles, actually. Oh, wow. And do observers actually get to go up in the plane, or is it just... Astronomers actually get to go up in this airplane, and uh, that's fun because you get to ride in the cockpit sometimes. Wow. And get a good view. <laughs> Something that's not really allowed on commercial flights that's anymore. That's right. Yeah. If you've got a plane that's flying along and you're observing the sky, how do you account for any turbulence, any motion of the plane? Well, the, 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 the telescope has gyroscopes on it, which are devices that stabilize the platform so that it's very, very still. And then the airplane kind of flies around the telescope. The telescope is suspended on what we call an air bearing. It kind of floats on air, and it has these gyroscopes on it that make it really, really stable. And if the turbulence gets too big, then the airplane will start banging into the uh, telescope platform and we have to clamp it all down and wait for the turbulence to stop. So let's go into a bit more detail on this. And how actually how far up in the atmosphere do you We're go? We're going to go up as high as 45,000 feet, a little bit uh, around 15,000 meters. And uh, at that point, the amount of air above us is so low that the water in the air is uh, minuscule, small. So you don't get any any interference. We don't. We get very little interference. And the instruments on the telescope are these going to be something that you can change regularly, or do you have to have the same instruments? We on can all change the time? these instruments after every flight. That's one advantage of an airborne observatory as compared to a spacecraft. We can uh, fly for ten hours with one instrument, and when we come to Earth, we can put on a different instrument that's uh, uh, used for a different kind of observation. We can also put on brand new technology whenever we get it. On a spacecraft, you're often flying with 25-year-old technology. Yeah. <laughs> and you say 10-hour flights, so you can go pretty much anywhere in the world. We can go with this aircraft anywhere in the world. So we you can, can fly see. across water, and so if we want to see things in the south, we can fly to uh, New Zealand, for example. If we want to see things way in the north, we can fly to Alaska. I guess those are all the advantages you have over the ground-based telescopes. And That's right. It's a mobile telescope, so it can go anywhere, anytime to see anything. Are there any disadvantages to having it in a plane? Well, the disadvantages are that uh, it's very expensive to operate. And How uh, much are we talking? We're talking $80 million a year for Whoa. about 100 flights, so it's $800,000 per flight. That's a lot of money. <laughs> That's a lot of money. And uh, also one disadvantage of the aircraft compared to some of the spacecraft is you can't see quite all the wavelengths you can see from a spacecraft. So with spacecraft, we, we often can see things that you can't see from the aircraft because they get above all the atmosphere. 
The other disadvantage, of course, is there's a limit to the size telescope we can fly. Yeah. We can fly a 100-inch telescope on a 747, and that's about the biggest. But on the ground, we can have huge, huge telescopes to look at wavelengths that do come through the air to the ground. I guess you need a bigger plane. That's <laughs> Space station. <laughs> so let's, I guess, let's talk a bit about the science that you'll be doing with Sophia then. Sure. Is there any kind of science that is best suited to Sophia as opposed to ground-based or space-based telescopes? Well, Sophia is going to be an excellent uh, platform for doing molecular spectroscopy and atomic spectroscopy, and this is what we need to understand the physics and chemistry of the star formation process. And you can do some of this from the ground, but to get the whole picture at all the colors of light that we need to look at, you need to fly in this plane from the air, too. If you were to just take what we could get with the ground-based telescopes, then you would just know part of the story. With all the observations, is there going to be plans that you can interrupt the observations that are going on if something special happens, if there's a supernova or something, getting quick Yeah, with this aircraft, we have the uh, ability to actually reprogram what we're doing in flight. So if we were to get word of something really fantastic going on in the universe, we could reprogram the flight right there on the spot and fly a new flight path in order to accommodate uh, the new observation. Can we talk a bit about um, the transient events, that kind of... Transient events are things that occur on the spur of the moment. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> we have a bunch of things like that that do occur in astronomy. An occultation might occur. That's when an object that's nearby, like a planet or an asteroid or uh, one of these Kuiper belt objects, comes in front of a star, then that blocks the light from the star. And the way in which it blocks the light can tell us whether the object that does the occulting has an atmosphere or whether it has rings or maybe moons around it. By, it does this by casting a shadow on the ground. And so if you're in the shadow, you can see what the shadow looks like as it goes across you and learn all these things. With this airplane, we can predict where the shadow is going to be and fly into it. As if you were to look at it from the ground, you'd have to be in the right place at the right time with the right telescope. So that's a very big advantage that you've that's got That's a very over. big advantage. Are you going to look for planets around other stars, anything we're, like that? We actually well? are... are going to look for atmospheres in planets around other stars. When planets around other stars come in front of their star, the way in which they block the light from the star can tell us what kind of an atmosphere they have and whether or not it's an atmosphere, for example, where life might be. And we have machines on this telescope that can actually make measurements that will tell us about that. Going back a step to the logistics of all of this again, when you've got you've got a plane, it's going to have exhaust coming out of it somewhere. Yes, it's there's no interference from that. Well, we look out of the back of the plane, so you might worry about the heat from the exhaust, and infrared is heat uh, interfering with our observations. But it turns out that the exhaust stay below the hole that we look out of. And we proved that this is going to be so by flying a Learjet with an infrared camera on it alongside a 747 to see where the exhaust went. So we know that we're clear. Have you had to kind of make modifications to the plane? Yeah, we've had to make some huge modifications to this airplane. We had to seal off the front of the plane so that the people can be pressurized and uh, live normally, and the back of the plane can be at uh, atmospheric pressure. So we had to cut the plane in the middle, kind of, and put a 21-foot diameter pressure bulkhead, it's called, in the airplane that seals it off. And uh, that nobody's ever put that big a bulkhead in an airplane before. It's twice as big in diameter as anything ever put in. Plus, it's got to be very stable against flexing in any way because the telescope's bearing would uh, uh, be interfered with if there were flexure. So there's about 350,000 pounds of force wanting to push that bulkhead off the back of the airplane, (laughs) and we have to have bolts and structural members to prevent that from happening. The other thing we did was we cut a hole that took out about a quarter of the circumference of the fuselage, biggest hole anybody's ever cut in an aircraft. It's basically 10 by 10 feet. Did you have to change any of the electronics or anything around? Yeah, the question is what did we have to do to modify the plane to accommodate this? First of all, we had to make it structurally sound. Then we had to divert all the flight controls and the hydraulic systems that operate the tail and uh, do that so that it still feels like a plane that flies right. What stage are you at with Sophia now? Well, we're going to open the door on the plane for science at the end of next month. We've already opened the door to prove we can fly with the door open. We did that around Christmas time. In uh, April, late April, we'll open the door and let light go down the telescope and uh, publish a picture.
there must have been a lot of test flights that have been going on. I guess they've yes, all been successful. Yes, we've been successful. flying dozens of test flights, actually. First of all, we had to fly about a dozen flights with the uh, aircraft before it was modified at all to prove that we understood the aircraft. We had to put little strain gauges all over it and uh, fly it around and uh, stress it out and see that we understood the way it uh, deformed. And we had to design, based on our knowledge of that, the hole that we were going to put in the aircraft. Then we had to fly it all around with the door shut and prove that we understood uh, the way it was deforming with a hole cut in it. And now we're flying around with the door open. So if people see a plane flying around with the door open, it's nothing to worry about. Not to That's worry. just Sophia. And we've actually had to land with the door open because it got stuck, and we could do that too. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. That's what we thought. <laughs> and is this going to be a, a long-term project? I and mean, most space telescopes are only a few years. Yeah, well, for. this project is going to last till at least 2035. The aircraft is already 40 years old, and I think that uh, since we've rebuilt it, it could last another 40 years. If it's going well and people are liking the science of it in 2035, maybe it will go longer. Well, good luck with it all, and thank you for talking to us today. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jen. Now, coming up in the middle of the month will be the Maori New Year. So to bring us a New Zealand view of some familiar celestial objects, here's Ron Fisher of the Cosmodome podcast. Okay, this is a talk about Matariki. What is Matariki? If you're from the Northern Hemisphere, this probably sounds like a very strange word to you. I'm from New Zealand, born and raised, and the indigenous people of New Zealand are the Maori people who came from Polynesia some millennia ago. And they brought this word and this culture to New Zealand. Matariki is the Māori word for the Pleiades star cluster. And as you know, the Pleiades is world famous all around the world, and it's called Subaru in Japan, it's called the Seven Sisters in ancient Greece. They had their own stories about the Seven Sisters. Well, for the Māori people, Matariki is very important. In fact, it's been important for their survival for a long time. Not only for navigating by the stars across vast oceans, but mostly for their marmataka, which is the lunar calendar that the Māori, Māori people have used, for, especially for planting and harvesting. So Matariki happens around late May, early June. What we're talking about is the rising of Matariki, the helical rising or the dawn rising, because that's what starts the Māori New Year. So we look for the rising of Matariki, and the following new moon, or in some cases the full moon, is what starts the Māori New Year. So it comes back in line with the stars, even though we follow a lunar calendar. So I'm going to touch on some of the cultural aspects of Matariki, for those that are interested, but we're also going to talk about how to observe Matariki in the sky, and why it's so important, and we'll touch on galactic star clusters and why they're so important to astronomers. So if you're looking at the stars in the morning sky and you're looking towards the eastern horizon before sunrise, you're going to observe stars and their helical rising. What we're talking about here is that as the Earth goes around the sun during the year, the sun appears to shift with respect to the stars. It moves through the 12 or 13 signs of the zodiac. And so what we get is that the sun appears to go through Taurus the bull and then on to Gemini, the twins. And as that happens, it means that the stars of Taurus begin to become visible before sunrise. And the Pleiades, or Matariki, actually sits on the back of Taurus the bull. So every day, the stars appear to rise four minutes earlier, and they rise higher and higher in the sky. That is what we call the helical rising. So Matariki disappears around May, but it reappears towards late May, early June. Now, if you imagine you take yourself back some 200 years, the Tohunga, the really wise, knowledgeable people of the tribes, they would have been studying the stars intently, night by night, and looking for signs and omens about things to come. Now, after millennia of knowledge being passed down, the traditions, they were very, very knowledgeable, and they knew what to look for. In fact, before Matariki rises, there's another star called Rigel, or Puanga, that rises before, so it's another sign to say, Matariki's on its way, so they'd be particularly looking out for it. And in fact, in some tribes, Puanga is what starts the Māori New Year instead of Matariki. And that would be simply because of geography, because there would be mountains in the way, and Puanga rises at the same time for them as Matariki rises for others. So what are we observing? Well, some people call it the Seven Sisters, right? Because they can see seven or so stars there. 
So it's a little star cluster, kind of hazy, but rather large. In fact, it's larger than a full moon in diameter. And depending on what the weather's like at the time, you may see seven stars, you may see less or even more. And some people say that that is actually a prediction of the weather to come, and in particular the harvest that's going to happen. So that's very important to know what your harvest is going to be like to be able to predict the weather, because that's going to determine your celebrations as well. So Matariki is a time of reflection, so we look at the year that's been, we remember people that have passed away, but we also contemplate the year to come, and we celebrate that. So if Matariki is not so clear in the, in the morning sky, they'll say that that is a prediction that the winter is going to be a harsh one and the harvest season's not going to be so great. So then we would be careful with the food that we ate during the winter. If it's crystal clear, we'll say, great, it's going to be a, it's going to be a great harvest and we'll really celebrate. So I want to talk now a little bit more about the scientific aspects of these what we call galactic star clusters or open star clusters as the Pleiades is because they're really important to astronomers. As astronomers we learn a lot about these objects because they tell us a lot about the evolution of stars, how stars evolve. Now that's because galactic star clusters or open star clusters as we call them are very young in age. Now I'm talking 100 million years old but for stars, that is very young. So compare that to our sun, which is approximately four and a half billion years old. So our sun is actually quite highly evolved compared to the stars of the Pleiades. So we say they're very young. And I liken it to being brothers and sisters, because they're born from the same nebula, the same cloud of gas. And just like we're born in the same family, we live together. And eventually, though, we do find our own homes. So the stars of Matariki, they are close together, but slowly they are drifting apart and they will eventually find their own homes. They're also very hot stars, and for people, they find that hard to imagine because they look blue. And they say, but doesn't that mean they're cool? Because that's what we relate to things on Earth. But, you know, as you get beyond red hot, things go white hot. But we don't often get beyond that on the Earth here. But if you could get beyond white hot, things actually go blue. And so we're talking about the surface of these stars is some 40,000 degrees Kelvin. The centre of the stars are much hotter than that, but it's the surface that gives us, gives us its temperature. So very young, very hot blue stars. So really interesting, because now we can observe the spectrum of the stars, and it's the light from stars that really give astronomers all the information. It's like a fingerprint inside of a star. So we observe the spectrum of these stars in a cluster, and we now know what young stars look like. Okay, I'm going to move on now, and just to finish up, I'm going to show you how to observe Matariki in the sky. So if you get out in the morning sky and you look due east, and we'll imagine it's the 14th of June, which is the day of the new moon in 2010, you want to get up by about 5.30. You want to make sure there's no clouds in the sky firstly, and that you've got a clear horizon to the east. It might mean going up a hill or going to a beach where you've got an ocean horizon if you can. But you need to be able to see towards the east before the sun rises. So I say 5.30 because you want to get prepared, you want to make sure you're warm, and you also want to let your eyes adjust. And if you really want to watch the star cluster rising, then it's good to be prepared for that. So it's, say, 6 o'clock now and you'll begin to see Puanga, Rigel, rising up due east first and foremost, that bright whitish, maybe a slight yellow tint to it. And below that, as time progresses, is Totoru. That's those three stars of Orion's belt. And those are one, two, three in a row, very close together, very distinctive. And they actually point you to the left and to the right. To the right, you'll find Takurua, Sirius. To the left, you'll find Aldebaran, and Matariki. So use those three stars, if you can find them, to point you across past uh, Aldebaran, which is the eye of Taurus the bull, a kind of red star, and beyond that is Matariki. So Matariki is a quite a faint star cluster, especially on the horizon like this. So sometimes you have to use your averted vision. So if you look to the side of it, it draws you back in because your peripheral vision is actually more sensitive and can pick up more detail than if you look at something straight on. And that would be another reason why people would have 
would have seen Matariki as quite an auspicious star cluster because it draws your attention back to it. Okay, so that's how to observe Matariki. So just to recap, get up by 5.30 if you can, but really you want to be watching at 6.30 because the sun's going to come up at about quarter to seven and then it's just going to disappear into the sun's rays. So look for Puanga, Totoru, and off to the left you'll find Matariki. And that concludes our short discussion about Matariki and the Māori New Year. Hope you've enjoyed that and I hope you can get out in the morning sky for yourself and see it as it has been for thousands of years. Thanks Ron. And you can hear more from Ron at cosmodome.co.nz Now as we come to the part of the show where we have the odds and ends, we're coming back a bit closer to home. In the past few weeks there has been some exciting news about Jodrell Bank and Jen has some more information. As some of you will know, at Jodrell Bank for the last few years, we've had a somewhat limited visitor centre. Uh, the main visitor centre, most of that was taken down a few years ago, and we've been eagerly awaiting news of a replacement. And we've just found out that £3.1 million of funding has been awarded by the Northwest Regional Development Agency and the Northwest European Regional Development Fund. And this money is going to kickstart the development of the new science discovery centre there. I think work's going to start on it quite soon with the aim to finish by summer 2011, so next Which is summer. Which pretty quick. Yeah, so hopefully that will all be there next summer for everyone to come and enjoy. Excellent. Now, also in odds and ends, as we record this, we're recording a little bit early because Jen's got to head off on her travels. <laughs> Yesterday, that was the 20th of May, the Japanese space agency, JAXA, launched Akatsuki, which is a mission to Venus, so it goes off to join the European Space Agency's Venus Express in investigating our sister planet to Earth. Akatsuki has five instruments on board, so that's a range of infrared and ultraviolet images, because the thick Venusian atmosphere doesn't let you see through with optical light, so you have to look in the infrared and the ultraviolet, and that will be heading off towards Venus, and we'll be returning some results once it gets there which will allow us to investigate the Venusian atmosphere to work out why there are these super high-speed winds in the Venusian atmosphere. And we'll also be looking for signatures of active volcanoes on the surface of Venus. So it'll be interesting to see whether the surface of Venus has a, a recently active surface or not. Now also on that rocket, there were a few other smaller satellites, and one of them was a solar sail. So hopefully now will be the first one that we'll be able to test properly. There was a previous solar sail that was launched by the Planetary Society, but unfortunately the Russian rocket it was launched from failed, so that never actually got tested. So hopefully this solar sail gets put through its, its paces. As Stuart was saying there, Akatsuki was launched yesterday to Venus, and Venus has been very bright in the evening sky recently. And to tell us more about what you can see in the night sky during June, here's Ian Morrison. Well, welcome to the night sky segment for June 2010. Of course, it isn't dark for very long. In fact, in the northern parts of the United Kingdom, up in Scotland, it never gets totally dark around uh, the midsummer day. So let's use the few hours that we can. The stars that you can see once it's got dark, and that's getting on towards 11 o'clock, to be honest now, first of all... Up in the right of the south, you've got a rather bright star called Arcturus, and that's in the constellation of Bootes. To the left of that, fairly high up again, is a rather nice constellation called Hercules. Four stars make up a keystone, like the rock they have at the top of a bridge, which sort of eases out the forces. And if you look with binoculars and go up the right-hand side of the keystone, you should see a little fuzzy object, and that's a rather lovely globular cluster called M13. Below Hercules is a fairly empty area of the sky. It's actually the constellation of Ophiuchus. But below that, if you have a good southern horizon, and particularly if you live in the south of England, you'll see a bright red star, which is Antares, the brightest star in the constellation of Scorpius. And over to its left is Sagittarius. The brightest stars make up the shape of a teapot. But sadly, we don't see these very well. If you could imagine water pouring out of the spout, as it would do if you were pouring a cup of tea, then it actually falls through a, a rather lovely open cluster. There are two there, M6 and M7, and with binoculars they might well show up. And if you take the top of the teapot, and a little bit to the right and up, you'll see a rather nice luminous region. It's called the Lagoon Nebula M8. So some nice binocular objects down there 
in this wonderfully rich part of the Milky Way, looking towards the centre of the galaxy. Up to the left of Sagittarius is the constellation of Aquila the Eagle, with its bright star Altair. Above that, and a touch to the left, is the lovely constellation of Cygnus the Swan. Its brightest star, the tail of the swan, is Deneb. And down a bit to its right is a small constellation of Lyra, with its bright star Vega. Those three stars make up what is called the Summer Triangle, a name, I think, that was given to them by Patrick Moore. Quite a nice thing to look for, if it's really dark, no moon, is to take your binoculars and sweep slowly from Altair up to Vega. You'll cross what's called the Cygnus Rift. It's a part of the Milky Way which is relatively dark because of a great cloud, probably of carbon and silicon. But against that dark cloud, you might come across a rather nice little asterism or cluster. It's called Brocky's Cluster, but we all call it the Coat Hanger because it looks just like an upside-down coat hanger. That's worth certainly looking for. So a lovely region of the sky, the Cygnus, Aquila and Lyra region, is one of the most beautiful parts of the sky we can see from our northern hemisphere. And high overhead, you've got the constellation of Ursa Major, and of course the brightest stars make up what is called a plough. Again, with binoculars, if you look at the central star of the handle, you'll actually see it's two, the two stars, Alcor and Mizar. So I know there isn't much darkness, but if you do stay up late and have a look, it can be well worth it. OK, so what about the planets? Well, in fact, it's a good month for planets, if you don't mind getting up early as well as staying up a bit late. Jupiter. At the beginning of June, it rises in the east at about 2.30 British summertime. It's magnitude minus 2.3, so it's quite bright. But it's actually fairly low in the southeast before dawn because the ecliptic is at quite a shallow angle to the horizon. So it's actually not very, very high. You'll see it all right, and with a telescope, you'll make out its four Galilean moons. But probably it's best to wait a month or two to see it well. Saturn, on the other hand, is high in the sky after sunset. I looked at it just the other night, and in fact it was the night when the rings were as close to edge on as they get. They were 1.7 degrees away from the line of sight, so just a very thin line was visible crossing the disk. Well, they've now started to open out, and by the end of June they'll be about 2 degrees, 2.1 degrees to be precise, relative to our line of sight. And gradually over the next uh, few years they'll open up again. This is the first time in 15 years that we've been beginning to see the northern face of the rings. Of course, because those rings are virtually edge on, Saturn isn't as bright as it usually is, and its magnitude is basically plus 1.0, rising to plus 1.1 during the month. So it stays pretty constant, not as bright as it usually is. So that's a nice one to see after sunset. You can still see Mercury during the first week or so of June. Again, it's a morning object. It rises about one hour before sunrise, and the magnitude is minus one, so it's quite bright. But as I've said, the ecliptic's at a very shallow angle with the horizon. So about half an hour before sunrise, perhaps the best time to look for it, it'll only be five degrees above the horizon. You'll need to use binoculars and have a very good low eastern horizon to pick it out. Not the best time to see Mercury, but it is there if you want to try. Well, Mars, which has been a wonderful object in the early part of this year, still remains visible, magnitude about plus 1.1, gradually getting a bit fainter during the month. It's in the southwest after sunset, and at the beginning of June, it's actually close to the star Regulus in Leo, and I'll come to that as a highlight. It's actually moving quite quickly, about half a degree a day, the diameter of the moon's width, eastwards through Leo, gradually dropping down along the ecliptic. Sadly, its angular size has now gone down to about six arc seconds, so you'd be mightily lucky to spot any details on the surface. It'll just look a rather nice sort of salmony pink colour. Well, if you've looked towards the west after sunset in the last week or so, you couldn't have failed to see Venus. It's really prominent. It's got a magnitude of minus 3.9, and that's the brightest object in the sky after the moon. So you can't really miss it. No one shouldn't say that, but you really can't. Uh, the angular size is 13 arc seconds. It's quite nice to look at with a small telescope just to see that. And that's gradually getting bigger as it nears us. 
At the moment, you actually see more than half phase. You see a f- not a full phase now, but it- it's a fairly gibbous object. And it was observations like this that showed Galileo that, in fact, Venus must be able to go behind the moon. It wasn't going in an epicycle between the Earth and the moon, as in the Ptolemaic system. It had to be on the far side of the moon, otherwise you couldn't see these fuller phases. Its brightness stays pretty constant almost all the time we see it. And that's because as it gets nearer to us, less of its disk is illuminated, but it's getting bigger. And the effective reflecting area stays constant. So it's about minus 3.8 to minus 4 virtually the whole time it's in the sky. So you can have some fun looking at the planets this month. Well, what about highlights? Well, there aren't an awful lot, but uh, I mentioned Mars a little earlier. Um, probably on the 5th and 6th of June is a good time to try, just after sunset. It's very close to Regulus, and that's in the constellation of Leo. And on June the 6th, it'll be just less than one degree to the upper left of Regulus. And it should make a rather nice colour contrast, that pinky-orange or orangey-yellow colour of Mars, contrasting with the blue-white colour of Regulus. So I think that's well worth looking out for. Now, something I'm going to include every month from now on is an object which has been imaged by schools using the two-metre Fox telescopes. They've got one in Hawaii and one in Australia. And this month I've chosen the Ring Nebula M57, and that is in the constellation of Lyra below Vega. Uh, To find out where it is and a bit more about it, you can go to the star section of the webpage, just put night sky into Google. On the upper left of that web page is a link to what's called the Astronomical A-List, something I set up some years ago now, 50 of the best objects in the sky. And M57, the Ring Nebula, is one of those. It looks like a little smoke ring through a telescope. You don't really see any colour, but you see that in the images. And it surrounds a little white star right at its heart. And that is a white dwarf star, or will become so, and it's the remnant of a star about the size of our sun that's come to the end of its life. It's blown off the outer parts of the star that form this lovely ring shape, or perhaps it's a shell, and the central part has collapsed down under gravity until something called electron degeneracy pressure prevents any further collapse, and it remains something like the size of the Earth. An interesting object, M57, and I've given the link to the Fawkes Telescope page. If you're a school teacher, then you could use it yourselves to make some wonderful images. Well, June the 20th, if you can stay up till midnight, Venus is in fact passing just above the Beehive Cluster. That'll make a nice view, won't it, with binoculars. The Beehive Cluster, also M44, the 44th object in Charles Messier's catalogue, sometimes called Price of Pay. And it's a nice binocular object. Um, Have a look, you'll see Venus as well. I started saying something about the moon. Lots of you will have small telescopes, and the moon is actually a nice thing to look at. A lot of people don't like the moon, because when it's there in the sky, they can't see faint objects. But I say, go for it. Enjoy looking at it. And around the 19th and 20th, the Terminator, which is where one sees things best, uh, is close to what's called the Alpine Valley, which actually cuts across the Apennines, close to the crater Plato, which is a rather nice dark very featureless flat crater. The Apennines, they run down to that rather nice young crater called Copernicus, so it's a very pretty part of the moon. The Alpine Valley is about 79 miles long, about 7 miles wide, and as I show in one of the images, it has a little rill running along the bottom. Very, very hard to see. It's quite a challenge to observe, but if you've got a big telescope, you can have a try. So finally we have a comet in the sky. I mentioned it in last month's highlights. It's called Comet R1 McNaught. It's actually running initially below Andromeda, where it is at the very start of the month, and then below through Perseus and to Auriga. The best thing to say is go onto the night sky site. I've got a little chart there which shows you where it will be throughout the month. And in fact, it passes some quite bright stars on its way and gets very close to Capella about the 25th or so of the month. And it means it'll be quite an easy object to find. However, as you go through the month, 
it's getting lower in the sky and the sky will be brighter. So probably around the middle of the month, 14th, 15th, 16th, when the moon is new, you'll have the best chance of spotting it. Nice to see a comet. It should be about sixth magnitude, so not too bad to see if you've got a pair of binoculars. OK, let's finish up then with a little bit about the southern sky. I'm going to be going there in a few weeks' time, so this is of real interest to me too. Um, if at about 9 o'clock at the beginning of June you look to the south, and that's of course the part of the sky, sadly, we cannot see from our northern latitudes, you've got a rather lovely view of the Milky Way arcing across from the east to the west. Um, highest up in the Milky Way is in fact the Southern Cross in Crooks. Centaurus is to its left, Carina and the False Cross, and it's actually also called the Diamond Cross. That's a new one to me, but that's what uh, it can be called. They'll be fairly high in the sky. Below them, you'll see, almost due south, the small magnetic cloud, up to its right, the large magnetic cloud. And that's towards the direction of the star Canopus. Setting towards the west is the very bright star Sirius, and you've got, seen the other way up to us, I suppose, Scorpius and Sagittarius rising in the east. So you've got a lot longer to observe the heavens over our summer, your winter months, so do enjoy doing that. Let me just highlight one little spot, which is actually rather lovely, and I have observed it. It's in Scorpius, and it is just above the region of Zeta 1 and Zeta 2 Scorpii, a rather lovely double star that has a very nice colour contrast, a reddish star and a bluish one. But not far above it, is a lovely little cluster of stars. It's NGC 6231. And up curving over to the left is a rather nice region of nebulosity. It's called IC 4628. In fact, it was at a star party in 1983. Someone said it looked like a comet. The stars might have been the nucleus, Zeta 1, Zeta 2, 6231, but looking a little bit like the coma that you have around a cometary nucleus, and then the tail arcing up to the left. Um, there's actually a rather spread out region of stars as well, and then you've got this rather nice nebulosity. So that's a very, very pretty region of sky, and in fact it's one of the most magnificent binocular fields in the entire sky. So find Zeta 1, Zeta 2, Scorpii, and have a look at what is sometimes called the False Comet. Good hunting. Thanks for that, Ian. So that brings us to the feedback section of the show, and as we mentioned on the previous Jodcast, if you don't like the feedback section of the show, you can now turn off because there are no more science content <laughs> after this. But we do like to keep in touch with Jodcast listeners and find out what they like and what they don't like, um, things that we might be able to do better. And the recent survey has been very good for providing us with lots of information, which we're now pouring through and having a look at. We will be making some nice pretty graphs and we will put them on the website, no doubt, at some point. I hope that people are appreciating that Stuart and I are both trying to speak slower. We had a few complaints about speaking too fast, which I know is something that my parents also complain at me about, so I know it's true. So we do listen to feedback and do try to respond to it where it's practical. Obviously, people who want the Jodcast to be daily, I'm afraid that we're not going to help. If they pay me, I'll do it. <laughs> we can do this as a proper job. Talking about the survey, last time on the Jodcast we said that we couldn't tell you the name of the person who'd won because we only had their email address. We've since had a response from that person, and it was Philip LaRiche from the UK, and he won the book Dark Side of the Universe by Ian Nicholson. And he actually wants us to sign it for him before we send it to him. So unfortunately, we won't be able to get Megan to sign it because she's in Australia and that would delay the book being sent. But we'll try and get everyone else to sign that for him. We should find out whether he wants me to take it to America so that Dave can sign it. Although if I take it, I might not give it back. It's a very nice It book. might get um, withheld by US Customs. Who knows? <laughs> and in email, we had an email from Stuart Weston, who's a software engineer at the Radio Observatory in New Zealand. So hello to Stuart. And... David McIver wants recommendations for astronomy podcasts that are suitable for children of, say, around 10 years old. There's only one that I'm aware of, and perhaps Jodcast listeners will know of some themselves, and they can send them in or add them on the forum. And the one that I know of is Ask an Astronomer, which is from Cool Cosmos, which is hosted at Caltech in California, and we'll put a link to that on the show notes. They're 
small video episodes which are aimed at children. So that might be a good one. And as I said, if any Judcast listeners have any further suggestions, please do let us know and we'll forward those on. Thanks also to Lewis Magnus, to Paul Dorrington and to Russell Jenkins for their feedback as well. And thanks also to Nick Whitehead from Northern Iceland, who sent us a message on Facebook, reminding us that when the aurora messes up your sky watching, all you have to do is grab a beer, climb into the hot tub and watch the sky dance for your pleasure. Uh, It's a hard life for some, isn't it? It is. So if you want to send us any feedback about the shows, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. Or on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And that brings us to the end of the show. And not only just the end of the show, unfortunately Stuart is leaving the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, so this is his last official Jodcast as a member of JBCA. And I have a little surprise for you. You do? When Nick left, you did a little pop quiz for him. Oh no. So Mark Mark and I have frantically been <laughs> been looking up oh, a few dear. things in the last half an hour. Um, Mark interrupted the recording of this actually to give me the answers to some questions. Oh, I should never have done this to Nick. <laughs> you shouldn't have. So first up, um, who was the very first interviewee on the Jogcast? The very first person we interviewed or the yes. very first person on an interview? The very first person you interviewed, someone interviewed. On the very first episode, who was interviewed? On the very first episode, I... I think we interviewed Michael Kramer, and I think the first person I interviewed was Jerry Gilmore, talking about Gaia. Well done. Okay, second question. How many episodes have you not spoken on? Not spoken in any way whatsoever? Yeah. One? Nope. (laughs) Five? I don't know. It's actually 23, according to Mark. 23? 23. Really? Yeah. Well, that's what Mark says. I don't know if we trust him. Question three. June 2010 is what number audio show? Oh, um, 84. Nope, it is number 88. If you only count the on the months and the extras, there was also the IAU special and the NAM 2007 special, which I didn't count as an extra. Right. So including everything, including videos and everything, what number Jogcast entry is this one? Oh, including videos. Well, we've had, we've had at least seven videos. <laughs> so I'm going to say 96. We're actually on 100. We're on 100? This, this is, is 100 Including episode. the videos, video trailers, all the audio, this is the 100th episode. Wow. So a good one for you to leave on, I guess. Yeah. Next question, when was the first extra show? That was in April 2007? May 2007. May 2007. <laughs> I, I, it <laughs> Although was April, after a NAM, I remember. Yeah, the April <clears throat> extra was the NAM special, which I didn't count, because uh, you didn't call it an extra. Yes, but it was the first one in the middle of a month. It was, so I guess you can have half a point for that. Oh, Although I'm not, I'm not tallying this. <laughs> What was the first episode that the Jogcast Juniors were on? May 2009. Yep. And finally, for a bonus, um, can you name two people who have been interviewed more than once? Chris Lintot. Mm-hmm. I don't um, think I've got a full list here, so you could probably say a name and I wouldn't know if it was right or wrong. And Lindsay Fletcher? I think so. She was there. She came up on the list. You could also had um, Jane Greaves, Carl Murray... Sir Bernard Lovell, I think he's been on more than once. Oh, Sir Bernard's been on a few yeah. times, yep. So there we go. There's your pop quiz. Thank you very much. Do I win a prize? <laughs> Unfortunately not. Anyway, I will still be hanging around in various ways to help <laughs> yeah, out you're with not the allowed to leave. All right, well, thank you very much for the quiz. And thank you to you all for listening all the way through to the end of this June episode. And thank you to you, Stuart, for starting the Jogcast, for keeping it going, for basically everything. I know that my time at JBCA has been a lot more fun this last year for doing the Jogcast. Thanks to Alan Penny and Bob Gertz for being interviewed. And once again, a special thanks to Ron Fisher of the Cosmodome podcast for his report about Matariki. So, until next time, Jordan. Bye, everyone.
Randall because the listener loves the Jodcast. <laughs>